in 2016, someone took the time to go through the billboard charts. And they were looking for love songs and how long these various love songs might have spent at the top of the charts or on the billboard charts. And so, uh, as you would imagine, there were thousands of songs that were on the theme of love. And uh, I appreciate Scotty this morning uh, because when I was loading my PowerPoint last night and I noticed the song lineup, I thought, my goodness, he managed to find... Uh, every every song that he has sung this morning and will sing uh, focuses on love. And it's a reminder that we as humans were built for love. And if you're curious about what they came up with was the, the greatest love song or the one that spent the most time at the top of the Billboard's charts, I was 13 years old, 1981, Lionel Richie and Diana Ross singing Endless Love. I think it was number one on the charts that year for something like nine weeks. But the reality is some people spend a lifetime looking for love. And people often go about it in the wrong way. And so this morning I want us to begin in Romans chapter 5, looking at what Paul tells us about the kind of love that God has for us as we begin in verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so we have been, uh, we're, we're working through a series called Fresh Air about uh, how the gospel renews and revives us. And we've been asking the question starting last week, what does the gospel give us? Last week we looked at how the gospel gives us peace. And today we're looking at how the gospel gives us love. But it doesn't stop there. 
as Paul just reminded us, the gospel gives us reconciliation, right church? And I love how he puts this, that at the time that we were of no use to God, and even, even later in that passage says that while we were enemies of God, that might be an interesting phrase. That might be one where you say, wait a second. How are we enemies of God? Well, he's talking about the sinful state, isn't he? He's saying that when we're steeped in sin, that it's our sinful selves, that, that God cannot be a part of us. God can have no part with evil, no part with sin. And so that is why he gave us Christ Jesus, right church? That he would shed his innocent blood on the cross so that we could once and for all be reconciled to God. Not just us, but all of humanity. And what a beautiful thing that is to think that we are of no use to God. Say, all oh, the human creatures that I created in my image, I can't have any part with them because of their choices in the free will that I granted them. But he loved us so much then he sends his son. And so we think about what the gospel gives us. One thing the gospel gives us is transformation. Now some of you may recognize the character on the screen. Many of you probably will not. The actor Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark. This is one of my favorite Marvel movies. I asked Barrett this morning, he was eating his breakfast, and I said, what year did Iron Man come out? And I thought he'd pull out his phone and Google it. And he said, without hesitation, 2008. And I'm like, okay, you know, all right. Impressive. Uh, and then I threw a couple more out there just for curiosity's sake. He's like 2019, 2016. So, yeah, he knows his stuff. He's, I can't remember how many articles he's published on a website writing about this kind of stuff. It's two or three hundred last time I looked. And so, but Tony Stark is the head of a defense company, the, the character is. And if there is anybody that is brash, anybody that is overly confident, anybody that is just absolutely full of themselves, it's Tony Stark at the beginning of this movie. This is a guy who is not afraid to use people to get what he wants. But then we see a transformation because by the time we get to a movie called Avengers Endgame, then now we see the same Tony Stark is willing to sacrifice himself, not only to preserve his friends and people that he loves, but also people that he's never met. Now, so we get this story of transformation. We get this story of self-sacrifice. And it makes for a great Hollywood movie. But the reality is, it's not very original. 
Hollywood has nothing on the Bible. Because when we look at stories of redemption and stories of transformation, we can find it certainly among these ancient words. And so I invite you over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I say the voice is back. It's still a bit a bit shaky. But in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind us, we're talking about the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? How many of us know, we've learned since we were small, that the gospel simply means good news. But then if somebody says, can you define the gospel for me? On the surface, you might be taken aback a little bit and think, wow, I, you know, how do I define it? It means good news. How do I define the gospel? Paul does it for us here. And also talks about some of his own transformation in the process. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still, are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Because right there, he has defined the gospel for us. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And that he, in that risen state, appeared to many witnesses. And so he says here that some of them, at the time that Paul wrote this to the folks in Corinth, he said, you know, most of them are still living. You know, they're still able to bear witness and say, I saw the risen Savior. He's saying some of them have passed already. But then he goes on to say, then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What an interesting way to describe himself. But he's talking about the manner in which he became an apostle. He's talking about his own very unusual transformation when he was on that road to Damascus. And he heard the voice of a Savior saying, Saul, why are you doing this? Why are you persecuting me like this? And so verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. 
a church family, here is a guy who has written a large portion of New Testament scripture. And yet he says that I'm one who doesn't even deserve to be called an apostle because of what I did. He's acknowledging that he's the same guy who once upon a time rounded up people who were followers of the way, as it was known early on, before followers of Christ were even called Christians. Rounding them up, getting letters of approval and authority from the Sanhedrin, and then traveling around, even, we read, going into people's houses, going house to house, and finding these people who were followers of Jesus, men and women, and putting them in jail. The same man who was standing there, giving approval, when Stephen's blood was innocently shed as they stoned him to death. And so he's saying, I don't even deserve this. And isn't the reality, church, that none of us deserves this? But that's what God's love is. That's what the gospel gives us. The gospel grants us forgiveness. The gospel grants us this tremendous, unending grace because of God's love and because of Calvary. And so, as we begin to conclude our time together this morning, we go back to the upper room. We go back to that time when Jesus is there with the twelve in that room trying to prepare them. That long section of instruction, that long conversation where he's saying to them, okay, I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm not going to be leaving you alone. It's going to be okay. Trying that last effort to pour everything out his teaching, his reassurance to give them confidence to help them make sense of what would happen in the hours to come and so we look then in John chapter 15 beginning with verse 9 as the Father has loved me so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so Jesus here saying, I'm I'm no longer calling you servants because a servant doesn't always know what's going on. A servant merely does what they're told. A servant is someone who knows just what they need to know. We've heard the term that we're on a need-to-know basis. And Jesus is saying, but you're not just a servant. You're my friends. Because you know everything. I've imparted it all to you. Just as God has given it to me, I've passed it on to you. And I love the idea of Jesus walking with us. I love the idea of Jesus saying, You, my followers, keep these commands, then you remain in my love. And you've got the love of the Father. Church family, that's the challenge to us is to just show that we are grateful recipients of God's love because we are willing to be obedient to his commands and then what is that greatest command that he gives us to love each other saying love each other as I have loved you Now, it's pretty concise, isn't it? This is it. Love each other. And then we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does it mean to love someone else? What does it mean to love someone? It means we're willing to invest in them. It means we're willing to forgive them. It means we're willing to forgive them. It means we're willing to forgive them. It means that we're going to stand by them when they've made mistakes. It means that we're going to stand by them when they are in the deepest, darkest valley. Some of you know what it's like to be in some of those pits, some of those deep places. And in those moments, you thought to yourself, wow, it's, it's here I really figured out who my friends are. Think about Jesus in the moment that he was in the deepest, darkest place. Was anybody really around? No. And then what did he do? He still loved them, didn't he? He welcomed them back with open arms. And so when we say that we're supposed to love each other, It means we do what's difficult. It means we do the unthinkable. It means we love the unlovable. Because that's what God does for us. He loves us in those moments that we were unlovable. 
Not only did He love us, but He sent us a Savior to shed His blood for us when we were in a state that we were unlovable. Wasn't that long ago that we talked about Peter asking Jesus, Hey, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? Seven times? Jewish law said three. Probably feeling generous and magnanimous in that moment. And then Jesus says, No. It's not seven, it's 70 times seven. Throws out a number that who can count forgiving someone that many times. Why? Because God's love for us has no bounds. And so far, love for others is expected to have no bounds. What does the gospel give us, church? gospel gives us love. I want us to close out our time together with reading a couple of verses together. Probably should have put larger font on the screen, but let's stand together. From John 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. 